church family. It's great to see you this morning. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 13. Uh, in a moment, we will stand and read. I will pray, and we will move right into our time in God's Word because I have 37 verses uh, to cover. I am preaching them all together because I truly believe they have one uh, unified message for the church that Jesus gives to his disciples here on the Mount of Olives during the last week of his life. So I will now invite you to stand back with me as we read, just for the sake of time, just the introduction verses, these first four verses of Mark 13, which sets the scene for what Jesus says and what's known as the Olivet Discourse contained here in this chapter. Mark records this for us. He says, and he came out of the temple. And one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather together with the brothers and sisters in Christ, the church of God here at Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you that our collective souls as we gather every Sunday morning to remember our risen Savior waits for his return. And as we do, as we have already sung, we rely together on your word because we know it instructs us. We know it reproves us and rebukes us. It corrects us. It admonishes us. It encourages us. It gives us strength to stand as we await the day. Oh, Lord, as the watchman waits for the dawn, so our souls wait for you. Let us look longingly now at what you have said to us as we await the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon is entitled, Awake to the End. There's a little bit of jest in that because this is likely to be a little bit of a lengthier sermon and some of you are going to need to you know, try to stay awake to the end. But it is more than that. The end of Mark 13 is the application for all of Mark 13. And at the end of Mark 13, we're going to be told to stay awake. It's why I wanted to preach the entire discourse. This is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the last lengthy section of teaching in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Luke, Matthew, and Mark. They all three record this a little differently, but they all three record this. The last final teaching of, lengthy teaching of Jesus before the events of uh, them celebrating the Passover together, what we would know as uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then Jesus' trial and crucifixion and resurrection. So it's, it's important for us, not just because of its place in the life of Jesus, but this is important for us to, to 
receive the challenge that the disciples received, and that was to stay awake to the end. The main idea of today's sermon is that followers of Jesus must be aware to avoid deception and awake to remain faithful as we await the end. Church family, we are waiting on something. It's what we do, as I prayed, it's what we do as we gather on Sunday mornings. We gather on Sunday mornings to remember Christ's resurrection on a Sunday morning. But more so than that, we gather on together as the corporate body, reminding one another that we remain faithful until Jesus returns. We look for his returning. And Mark 13 helps us to do that. I began by reading the first four verses which I'll just paraphrase now so we can understand the setting of what is happening. Jesus now for the final time comes out of the temple. This is the third time that Mark is telling us that Jesus has come out of the temple from 11, 12, and 13. It's it's important, and if you go back and listen to the sermons in chapter 11, you'll know why that's important. But Jesus has, has come out of the temple. He's separating himself from what was happening in the temple, and particularly the leaders of the 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 structure around the temple. And he comes out and his disciples say to him, and, and you can't really blame him for this. The disciples say to him, Jesus, look at the majesty of this place. And it was majestic. This is the second temple that had now been reconstructed, uh, not just during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but now reconstructed and expanded during the time of Herod the Great began before Jesus was born, finished when Jesus was a child. This is a massive construct that sits on the side and top of this mountain overlooking the Kidron Valley to the next mountain over, which is the Mount of Olives. Even still today, when all that is left is the foundation, all that's left of the original Temple Mount is the, is the, the, the retaining walls and foundation. It's still incredible to see. It would have been even more so to see it in its day with the temple of God sitting atop and the portico surrounding it. It was, it was massive. And so they say, look at how wonderful this building is because they've still not fully seen that what Jesus is doing is going to replace all of that. That, 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 that their eyes are still fixed on how marvelous the temple is. And Jesus simply says to them that not one of these stones will be left on another, but they will all be thrown down. And so they cross, into the, they cross down the Kidron Valley. They come up the other side to the Mount of Olives, which has a spectacular view of the temple. So all of this is said with a spectacular view of the temple right in front of them. And Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives and four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, come to him and say, they, they make a request, tell us when these things will be And what are going to be the signs that will accomplish these things? Now, just for clarity, we're going to go to Matthew 24. It's only going to be the only time that we go to one of the other Olivet Discourses, just because the way Matthew records the question helps us a little bit. In Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples ask it this way, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples in Mark, but clarified for us in Matthew 24, are asking two questions. One, Jesus has just said, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When's that going to happen? And two, what's it going to be like when you come back? Almost as if they're asking a question, but two questions about 
how can we be ready for the temple to be destroyed and how can we be ready for you to return as if there were be the opportunity to somehow miss it? Because again, they're, they're still... They're still growing in this, right? They still think the temple is marvelous. And so help us to not miss it, Jesus. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the signs of your return? Our interpretation of Jesus' prophetic words in Mark 13 must, that's in all caps in my notes, must answer the two questions asked of Jesus by the disciples. Jesus answers both questions about the destruction of the temple that was before the eyes of of his disciples and about the second coming of Christ in the end. I'm dividing this into four exegetical sections. And imagine, if you will, Jesus is climbing a rhetorical ladder. And as he goes up the ladder, he's talking about some things. He gets to the top of the ladder and then starts his way back down. And as he comes back down the rhetorical ladder, he talks about the same things on the way down that he talked about on the way up, just from a little bit of a different perspective. So the first section and the fourth section go together, and the second section and the third section go together because they're going up the ladder, they're coming back down the ladder. And so as you structure your notes, as you're taking notes, just keep that in mind that sections one and four and then sections two and three complement one another and really in a lot of ways speak to the same things. So there's four points to today's sermon. The first, that Jesus tells of the signs that will continue until the end. Now, each of these four sections I'm dividing in half. So there's really like eight points to this sermon, Okay. The first, inside of the signs that will continue to the end, is that Jesus warns his disciples about spiritual and physical calamities that will continue until the end comes. So let's look at the next few verses, starting in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, I meant to say this in my introduction. What I'm going to attempt to do today in Mark 13 is tie it to some of the more significant prophetic passages in the Bible about the end. Primarily Daniel 9, which we considered this time last year, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation 6 and 7. Okay, so I'm going to show you how Jesus isn't standing on an island here, but all of the other prophetic passages in the scripture that speak about this same time period use very similar language, and are some of which happen before Jesus and he relies on, some of which happen after Jesus' prophecy and they rely on him, but all speaking about the same thing. So the way that Jesus begins to answer their question is with a general warning. And that general warning really looks at two things, spiritual calamity, spiritual leading astray, and physical calamity. He tells them, don't be taken in by those that come and say, I'm the Christ, follow me. 
And he also says, don't be surprised when you hear about war, when you hear about rumors of wars, that this is not the end, that nations will rise against nations, kingdoms will rise against kingdoms. There will be actual physical calamity like earthquakes and like famines, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. What Jesus is saying is that these things existed in his day They've existed throughout the the age, right? They've existed for the last 2,000 years. They exist in our day, right? We're one year removed now from the beginning of the war in Ukraine. That's just another example. It's one of hundreds upon hundreds of examples of what Jesus was saying here, that these things are just going to be, that physical, spiritual and physical calamity will just continue until the end. And we shouldn't look at them and say, oh, this is it. This is the beginning of it. No, this is just God's ongoing judgment against the sin of people. That as God allows us, gives us over, gives our world over to our sin, we wreak havoc around the world. Now, let me show you a place that I think is saying the same thing. So if you want to flip over in your Bibles, you can to Revelation chapter 6. Keep your finger in Mark 13. We're coming back quickly. But Revelation chapter 6 tells the story of what is most often known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You you know those, right? The, The four horsemen of the apocalypse. I don't actually think they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I just think they're the four horsemen of God's judgment. That we see this. You can actually look back throughout the history of the world and see all four of these. That these are just present realities that correspond to what Jesus is saying in Mark 13. I think when John receives this revelation and records it for the church, there's an assumption that they would have known the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. Watch how closely these align. Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud uh, voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. So that's the first one. A white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer Now, in Revelation 19, there's another rider of a white horse, and it's Jesus. This rider of a white horse in Revelation 6 is not Jesus. These are fake Jesuses. These are pretender Jesuses that Jesus has warned about in in Mark 13. What does he say, right? He says, don't go out. When Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will try to lead you astray. That over the course of millennia now, people have tried to lead others away from Christ by trying to take the place of Christ. That's the rider on the white horse. The second, verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would, should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The second horse, the second rider is on a red horse. This represents war. And what did Jesus warn us in Mark 13? There were going to be war and rumors of war. We get to verse 5 of Revelation 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and look and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quarter of wheat for a Daenerys and three quarters of barley for a Daenerys and do not harm the oil and wine. Now that language there's a little confusing to us because we don't really trade in Daenerys anymore. And we don't trade in necessarily in barley and wine and oil, but this is representing famine. This is really representing inflation. Does that hit home? 
right? It's just representing the inflation primarily that comes as a result of man's actions in war, right? That as, as the greed of man increases to the point where we're willing to kill other men for it, the price of goods arise. And what is it that Jesus says? Jesus tells us that there will be famine, right? As nation rises against nation, as, as there are wars and rumors of wars, these things will be. Now, let me tell you about the fourth horse, and then we're going to jump to it in Mark 13. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were giving authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine, with pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. The, 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 pale, the rider of the pale horse is death. He is the culmination of the previous three. He's the culmination of deception. He's the culmination of war. He's the culmination of famine. And what Jesus tells us in Mark 13 is these things are just always going to be with us. That these things are just the birth pains. That, that they've existed forever, right? And we can look back over human history and see all of these. We can see deception, we can see war, we can see famine. We just see these things, these great calamities that have fallen upon the world are God's judgment against the world for their disobedience. As we live in our sin, we bring about these calamities. And they will just continue, Jesus says. They are not the end. They're a reminder to us that the end is coming. I'm going to come back to that fourth horse in just a second. Let's look at the second point here. Jesus warns his disciples about the ongoing persecution that his fathers will face until the end comes. So Jesus, he's spread out. He's he's global, okay, thinking about the calamities of the world. He takes kind of one step up that rhetorical ladder now, and he's going to talk specifically about the church. This is what he says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and deliver, oh, deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you'll say, but say whatever is given in that hour, for, uh, for it is not you who speaks for the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." Who was that fourth horse, that rider on the pale horse? Was death. And hear me, church. The, the, The church is not removed from persecution. Actually, Jesus promises us persecution. The church is not removed from hatred. The church is not removed from arrest. The church is not removed even from death by the sword. All of these things Jesus deals with. This is the fate of his church. The fate of his church is that we will live in the midst of these things, doing what he tells us to do. In verse 13 of Mark 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Our instruction is to persevere, which we'll get more to at the end, but I've got to make note of it here because Jesus says it here. Our instruction is to persevere even in the face of war and famine and persecution and the sword, we faithfully persevere. And then what happens in Revelation 6? 
Well, in Revelation 6, a fifth seal is opened. And when the fifth seal is opened, this is verse 9, I saw the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Revelation 9, 6, 9 through 11 shows us the rest that faithful Christians have after death. That as faithful Christians live enduring lives, faithful to the gospel of Jesus, no matter what befalls us, famine, war, direct persecution of his church, here's what's promised to us. A white robe. The purity, that's what White wrote, the purity of Christ. We're dressed like Christ. We have the purity of Christ, and we're invited to come and to rest. What is the church who has passed before us, who Paul, in other places, says has fallen asleep? What are they doing now? They are resting with Jesus. That's where they are. They have endured and are resting with Jesus. And if we die before the return of Christ, that's where we will go. Those who are in Christ, we will go to rest with him. But these things are not yet the end. This is just the ongoing pattern of the world so far. Second main point, climbing up that rhetorical ladder some. The destruction of the temple foretold and foretells of the end. So Jesus is going to talk about that magnificent building that they've asked about in front of them. So far, he's just said, here's all the things that are going to kind of go on during this age. Just cyclical, ongoing destruction, death, famine, persecution. These are the things that are going to happen. Now let's talk about this building that you've asked about. And they're, again, divided into two sections. First, Jesus borrows from past prophetic events and foretells of the coming destruction of the temple. So look at verses 14 through 20 with me. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then Mark gives us a little parenthetical. Mark gives us a narrator notation. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been uh, from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." Now, as Jesus climbs this rhetorical ladder, he turns his attention to that marvelous building sitting in front of them, and he's going to answer their first question. When's that going to happen? What, what, when, you just said all these stones are going to be thrown down. When is that actually going to happen? And Jesus looks back, borrows some language from Daniel that helps us to understand what's coming. Now, this is future tense for Jesus and the disciples. But I believe this is past tense for us. We're actually standing in between the two questions, if you will. So what Jesus does is he looks back on Daniel chapter 8, I think also a little bit of Daniel chapter 9, and a little bit of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 8, for instance, is one of the places that I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said, 
to the one who spoke, for, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to the trampled underfoot? Now, if you go back to March of last year, February, March of last year, I preached all of these texts. I preached Daniel uh, last late winter and early spring. And if you weren't with us then, I'd encourage you. We have all of those messages online because I don't have full time to tell you what Daniel 8's about, what Daniel 9's about, what Daniel 12 is about. I don't, have, I don't have that full time this morning. So you, I'm, I'm assuming you've heard me preach that. And if not, go back and listen to it. But Daniel 8 is, is a specific prophecy of something that happened about 200 years before the life of Jesus with a, with a, a, a Seleucid, when the Seleucid Empire, which was part of the, the uh, empire of Greece, ruled in that land, and there was a terrible man named Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, if you were here for Daniel, remember me talking about this guy. And this guy, this ruler, came into Jerusalem, uh, sacked the city, sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, and uh, erected a statue of Zeus in the temple of God. And this was embraced by the Jewish people as what Daniel had talked about in Daniel 8 as the abomination that causes desolation, right? They viewed it as that. Everybody in Jesus' day, including Jesus, looked back on that event and was like, that's it. But Jesus, looking forward, says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. So Jesus, just like we're standing between the two questions, Jesus, in answering about the temple, sees himself standing between two fulfillments. One, the abomination of desolation by Antiochus Epiphanes some 200 years before, all right? And one still yet to come, which would be about 40 years later in 70 AD, where Titus, a general, eventual emperor of Rome, sieges Jerusalem. During the time of Passover, when over a million people were gathered in Jerusalem and hundreds of thousands of people died, many of them even at the hands of their own brother as they fought over food and resources. And eventually, Titus, standing in the temple, lights it on fire and not one stone is left unturned. You can go to Israel today and see the cracks in the original pavement where the stones were thrown off of the foundation, that this is what was fulfilled. This is the guy, if you'll remember when we were going through Daniel 9, this is the guy in the middle part of Daniel 9, 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The prince who is to come that will destroy the city and the sanctuary in Daniel 9 is Titus. That, that Jesus is looking back on Antiochus. He's looking forward to Titus and giving a prophetic word that, that he will do like the previous had done, but even worse. So he borrows from that past prophetic event to tell them of what he had just said in that opening section, that not one of these stones would be standing on themselves. But that's not the only spiritual meaning for us. There's, there's more that Jesus says as he continues to climb this ladder. So the second part of this, the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem serves as an ongoing warning to God's people, the spiritual temple, to remain pure to the end. Look at what he says in verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. 
But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. During this time, the time that Jesus is speaking to them, or the time that we're living in now, sorry, after the destruction of the temple and before the actual end where Jesus returns, we're given instructions. We're supposed to remain on guard. Don't be led astray. Many will arise like Antiochus did, like Titus did. Many will arise and, I do believe, very likely one final Antichrist will arise at the end to greatly persecute God's people and lead the church astray. He's the one in Daniel 9, 27, the middle section, and on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. That, that this is the final view. So imagine these, I talked this one, I talked about Daniel. I hope you remember this. That prophecy is often like looking at mountain peaks in the, in the distance. And if we look at them through a telescope or binoculars, we don't have a depth of field. So it looks like two, three, four mountain peaks are all right next to each other. But if you actually walk them, one's a lot closer to the next. You go mountain peak, valley, mountain peak, valley, mountain peak, valley. And so when we're looking at prophecy in scripture, sometimes we find ourselves in a valley looking back on a mountain peak of fulfillment and looking forward to a, va- a, a peak that has not yet been fulfilled. And that's where we stand right now. I believe we look back on what Jesus is saying here about the destruction of the temple, fulfilled in Titus, but Titus is a type. So we look back on that and we're like, there the temple was destroyed, fulfilled, but another one is going to come that's going to try to lead the church astray. This is, Paul, I think, writes about this same guy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, another major section of prophecy concerning the end. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness This is the one who's in the type of Titus and Antiochus. Antichrist is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you of these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time later. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So there's things happening now. There's these little antichrists. As John says, many antichrists have already come. This is just an ongoing thing leading up to a final one. And then the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The end, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. They're led astray, right? So that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul, I think like Jesus, I'm like Daniel, is looking through these mountain peaks, looking through these regular cycles of people arising to oppose the people of God and sees a final version, an antichrist. Verse 4 tells us that he's seated in the temple of God. But I want to ask you for a minute, why do some, and maybe some in here, it's all right, but why assume that this is a physical temple? The physical temple has been destroyed. 
So many people have built their eschatological understanding, it's their understanding of the end times around the idea that a physical temple in Jerusalem needs to be, needs to be rebuilt to fulfill all of this. Number one, Mark 13 is fulfilled in the past. And I don't think we should read into what Paul is saying to Gentile Christians on a whole other continent, okay, who have no connection at all to the original temple in Jerusalem, which Paul says has been done away with, which Jesus says has been done away with. I don't think there's any reason at all for us to assume that that needs to physically exist in Jerusalem because over and over again, Paul affirms this to us. The New Testament affirms this to us, that we are the temple of God. We, the church, are the temple of God. So where is it that this man of lawlessness will attempt to seat himself amongst God's people? Even if he could, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, to seek to lead astray even the elect. If such a thing were even possible, that God's people could be snatched out of his hand, this man will try to do it. So, here's what we have so far. A general warning about calamity that's going to exist in our world, a prophecy that is fulfilled about 40 years later after Jesus does it in 70 AD. And let me just say this. So, so there's all that stuff about that, you know, flee to the mountains and, 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 and all Christians did this. And not just the, like the Bible doesn't tell us that. Historians tell us that. But there's a prominent Jewish historian, ancient Jewish historian, and a prominent Christian historian, uh, ancient Christian historian, that both talk about Christians fleeing fleeing Jerusalem in about the year to two years prior prior to Titus coming. Why? Because they remember Jesus's warning and they got out before it was. And so historians tell us that very few, if any Christians actually lost their lives in the, in the sacking and the, uh, and the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple because they remembered what Jesus said and they got out. I'm going to show you that a little further in a minute. The second part of this, all Christ's elect will be gathered to him at his return. Mark 13, 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. Remember those that they can't be deceived, but man, this guy's gonna be so good at it, it's gonna even seem like he could. From the end of the earth and to the end of the heaven. Now we're getting to the end of the age. Now we're keeping climbing up that ladder and Jesus is going to tell us about what happens at the end of the age. I know we're doing a lot of jumping here. Go back with me to Revelation, right? Revelation 6, these four horsemen, and you've got all these people dressed in white, right? And then you've got Revelation 7. It comes, it comes right next, all right? Now, Revelation is the cyclical thing. It's kind of like this rhetorical ladder, except for it's going up a spiral, kind of telling us some of these same things. But notice what it's saying to us, verses 1 through 4. Thinking now about the elect, okay, those that the angels are going to be sent to the four winds to gather. And after this, I saw four angels standing at four corners of the earth. So from all over the earth, using that same language, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no mighty wind blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So when Jesus talks about the elect here that are gathered from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, right, 
John in his revelation sees that same language, these angels spread out. And who is it they gather? They gather all of God's church. Now, I recognize this may be something different than what some of you hold, but here's how I interpret the 144,000. 144,000 is a multiple of a number of completion. It's a perfect number. This is not some future group of people, I don't believe. I think this is us. This is the church of God throughout the age. These are the elect of God who will be gathered by the angels of God at the end. And then what happens in verse 9 of Revelation 7? And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and from, or from every nation and all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? Remember, they were clothed in white robes in six. They're clothed in white robes in seven. And from where have they come? They said, sir, you know, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the elect from Mark 13 that are gathered by the angels of God when Jesus returns. This is the fate of all who are in Christ. That no matter what this world throws at us, no matter how much persecution there is, no matter how deceptive these little antichrists culminating in a final one are, the true followers of Jesus will persevere. And the true followers of Jesus will be gathered together at the end from the four corners of the earth. And when you put us all together, we will be a complete set, innumerable from a human perspective from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne. Lastly, the watchfulness and obedience and patience required until the end. Again, in two parts. The first, the lesson of the fig tree serves as a warning of the imminent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way back down, okay? He's gone all the way up the ladder. He's foreseen the very end, the gathering of God's elect. He's coming back down the ladder now. You ready? From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. So Jesus is saying, what I have told you will happen. Remember, he's on his way back down the ladder. They've asked two questions. Tell us about the temple. Tell us about the end. He's now talking about the temple. He's talking about the temple. When will this happen? It's going to happen and you guys are going to see it. That's what it means when he says this generation will not pass away until these things take place. You, disciples, the ones asking the question, you're going to see this with your very eyes. And it happened, not all of them, but it happened in some of their lifetimes. It was only 40 years later. Some of them were young men. They were there. They were around when it happened. That Jesus is... The fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple happened. And he said, you won't miss it. And they didn't miss it. And this is why I think it's important to recognize that historians tell us that all the Christians got out. They got out because they didn't miss it. They listened to Jesus. They got out. 
while hundreds of thousands died, they, they were somewhere else, out, because God had warned them, and they paid attention. But now we're back at the bottom, where we started with just this ongoing cycle of calamity, this ongoing cycle of persecution. And Jesus gives us a final warning. Warns his followers to always be ready for his return. But concerning, this is verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or with the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Remember I told you at the beginning, you had to stay awake. Some of you are now waking up. You had to stay awake, that this is the point The point of Jesus' prophecy answering the two questions about the destruction of the temple, 70 AD, and his eventual return sometime in the future from us, tomorrow, 10 years, a millennia, two, I don't know, but sometime in the future, what is Jesus' instruction? Stay awake. And, And he gives a warning first. He says, nobody knows the day or hour. And I think this is crucial for us because throughout the church age, many have tried to figure this out. Many have made lots and lots of money convincing people they have figured it out. And every one of them has been wrong. So when people come, and this happens occasionally, people come and think, I think I know where we are on the timeline. Like, you need to know you're in a company of wrong people. Because we don't know, and Jesus has told us we're not going to know. And as we try to expend the energy to know, we fail to do what Jesus tells us to do. Stay awake. You're not going to know when he comes back. So what do we do? We stay awake. Our job, simple, is to stay awake. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. What does Paul say after talking about that? But we ought to always give thanks to you. Thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tradition that we taught you, either by our spoken word or by our letter. All. I mean this. And if Lord willing, I preach Revelation, I'm hoping to do that in a few years. All New Testament eschatology, meaning stuff about the end times, is always tied to perseverance. The message to Christians is always stay awake, persevere, endure, stand firm. These these prophecies are always followed with an encouragement to not be deceived, to not be led astray, to not lose hope, but to be awake and stand firm. So what? We've climbed the ladder. We've come back down. We're standing between the destruction of, Jeru- destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the eventual return of Christ. What is his, his, what is his church supposed to do? Well, I'll ask a question for you. Will Christ find me, you, us, wise and faithful upon his return. 
In Luke chapter 12, Luke records for us a parable of Jesus that is similar to the brief parable that he concludes the Olivet Discourse in in Mark 13. And in Luke 12, it's a parable about a, a watchful and faithful servant. And he tells this parable, and then like he often does, like they often do, like they did in Mark 13, the disciples come to him and like, what's this about, right? And so Peter asks them in verse 41 of Luke 12, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now get this, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Who is the wise and faithful among us? It is those who are in Christ, who are not distracted by the cares of this world, who are not fearful of persecution and famine and sword, but those who simply seek to be obedient to God. We are wise because our wisdom helps us to avoid deception. And you noticed how many times in Mark 13 we were warned about deception. We're wise to avoid deception. And we're awake to remain faithful. Now, I recognize, church, there may be some of you that were really longing for me to lay out some gigantic timeline and to tell you all of the things. That, but I don't think that's the message. I don't think that's the message of any New Testament prophecy. While it does give us glimpses of possible future events. What it does is call us to faithfulness. And, and, and we end up longing for these. I'm going to be careful here. We, we end up longing for, for this mystical side of Christianity. That, that we want to, you know, we want to see all of the dots connected. Or we want to experience some kind of overflowing outpour that nobody can explain. But that's not really what the scriptures call us to. Hear me, my friend. This is what the scripture calls you to. Ordinary, regular, ongoing obedience and faithfulness. It's not hard. I'm just going to step by step follow Jesus. I'm going to do it alongside of his church that together we're going to live faithful and obedient lives. We're going to do what Jesus instructs his disciples. We're going to stay awake so when he returns, and he is returning, when he returns, we will be found faithful. One more question before I'm done. If you're not faithful, if you've not put your hope and trust in Jesus, what do you think your hope is when he does return? You have none. You have none. If your hope is in your own good works, if your hope is in yourself, if your hope is in the God that you have created in your mind, understand something. The judgment of God sits on you now and into the future. Oh, but you can turn to Christ and believe in him and find the hope that the Christians in this room so enjoy. And you too can be faithful to the end. If you'll put your faith in Jesus, these aren't verses to fear. These are verses to give us hope because we know the end is written before we experience it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your confirmed word 
that we can look back and say, Jesus said the temple would be destroyed and it was destroyed. We can look back further than that and say the the temple would be desecrated in Daniel and, and it was. And we can look at Paul and Jesus and Daniel and see that there is still yet more to come but not any that, fe- that cause fear or trepidation in our lives and not even really think we have to figure out because we just get to live obediently to you. And you have given us your ordinary means of grace, your church, your word, our connection to you through the Holy Spirit and prayer that helps us day by day be obedient. Oh God, when you return with this church, this people, if we are still in this place, at that time, be found awake, wise, and faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing about the coming of Jesus?